uh, John's Gospel, and um, this is this is going to be quite hard work. Um, we're going to need three talks, I think. Um, as far as the Gospels go, it's tremendously different to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Indeed, that's why Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels, i.e., because they're the same as each other. When you come on to John's Gospel, uh, I mean, we're, we're into something completely different, and uh, it's it's very it's very wordy. Um, a tremendous amount in it because it homes in on Jesus's teaching. Uh, there's action in it, there's narrative in it, but it is very wordy. If, if you think in terms of films, this is one of those Japanese films with subtitles that Andy so loves. Do you know what I mean? Whereas in comparison to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they've got more car chases in them. Can you see what I mean? So it's it, it is very wordy. It's absolutely packed, um, you know. But but obviously we've just got to dive in and we got to do it. Now written by by John, um, and uh, he he was uh, there was John and his brother James, and uh, they they between them were the uh, the uh, the sons of Zebedee, and uh, Jesus nicknamed him and his brothers sons of thunder. You remember they wanted to call down fire on people when they didn't, you know, believe what Jesus was saying. So he was a bit of a lad, certainly. Um, they were fishermen, uh, in exactly the same way Simon Peter and his brother Andrew were fishermen, well, so John and his brother James were. Um, and this was the last gospel to be written. John's writings are, are virtually, well, the last in the New Testament, and it was probably written around AD 85, so, so it was quite, quite late. Um, and it, it, it can't, not 92% of it isn't in the other Gospels. So that, that shows you how different it is. And uh, it, it, it really does go in detail into Jesus' teachings outside of the parables. The other Gospels mainly home in on Jesus' parabolic teaching, the parables. But John, he's, he's really going more for what you might call Jesus' theology, Jesus' real teaching, all right. Um, so it's it's kind of it's it, it is going to be quite hard going. It was for general readership. It was kind of written to anyone and everyone and nobody in particular. And uh, you know, so so we've just got to dive in. And, and so in in chapter one, uh, John deals. He doesn't deal with Jesus's birth at all. The synoptics do that. Okay, well, two of them do. Uh, but he does deal with Jesus's pre-existence. And he opens his gospel by establishing that Jesus was God. And he does this by calling Jesus the Word of God. So he starts off, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, blah, blah, blah. And this, this word in the Greek for word, all right, the word for word in the Greek is logos. And he says, in the beginning was the logos. And what, what this word denoted to the Greeks was reason, and it came to them to be the rational principle and mind behind the governing powers of the universe, right? And the Jews used it as a way of referring to God. So when you put those two concepts together, the way the Jews viewed this Logos and the way that the Greeks did, what you've got is Logos is the mind and the reason of God. I mean, the Greeks believed in a completely different type of God to the Jews. The Jews believed in the proper God, the God who actually exists. But nevertheless, that's the push 
when John says, in the beginning was the mind and the reason of God. In the beginning was the word. And he establishes nine things about this word. And he says, this word, which obviously he establishes was Jesus, um, he said this word was in the beginning, so that means that this word was before, there before creation was, therefore it was eternal. He said this word was with God, so the word was separate from God. But then he says, thirdly, the word was God. So therefore the word is divine, so there you've got the Trinity. You know, we see that you know, God is made up of more than one person uh, within the Godhead. Four, creation was through him, the word. Five, he is the source of all life and all light. Six, he came into his creation, but he wasn't recognised even by his own special people, the Jews. So when this word comes into the universe, he wasn't accepted, he wasn't believed in. And then seven, of this word, it says, to any who received him and believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Eight, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God, the Logos, the mind and reason of God, the second person of the Trinity, becomes a man. And it says, dwelt amongst us. And that, that word dwelt in the Greek, um, and we saw this when we did the Haggai series, didn't we, uh, is the, the Greek word for tabernacle or tent. And in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul uses the same body, uh, sorry, the same word for the unglorified human body being a tent. So we have here the eighth thing about the word is that this word, God, becomes a man. And then the ninth thing, this word, this man whom God has become, was full of grace and truth. So they're the nine things that John establishes immediately in the first few verses of the first chapter. I warned you, this is going to be hard work, right? Uh, I mean, obviously one could write volumes just unpacking everything in those nine points, but obviously we, we, we've got to push on. Um, then in chapter one, we're, we're moved on and uh, we're introduced to John the Baptist. So he comes into the picture here. And um, John establishes, the writer John establishes that John the Baptist wasn't the word himself. Some people thought John the Baptist was Messiah, but he wasn't. But that John the Baptist was on the scene in order to witness to the word. And then we have some teaching of John the Baptist and, and he establishes that Jesus is the means of grace and truth um, in exactly the same way that Moses was the means of the law coming. So we see that Moses representing the Old Testament and Jesus, the Word, full of grace and truth, representing the New Covenant. And then goes on to say that Jesus makes God known. Of course, he is God, become man. Uh, because no one has ever seen God, um, but Jesus makes him known because he is himself God, i.e. Jesus is God in visible form. No man has ever seen the Father, but Jesus is God in visible form. Then we have the, the priests and the Levites coming to John the Baptist, uh, challenging who he was. They say, look, are you the prophet 
or are you Elijah? Because, you know, people thought that John the Baptist was maybe, you know, sort of like one of the Old Testament prophets rise from the dead, or maybe he was the prophet to come, as Moses spoke about, you know, and obviously some people uh, believe that that prophet was going to be the Messiah, but others believe that the prophet that Moses spoke about was someone other than Messiah. And so, you know, the, the priests and the Levites, they say to John, look, who are you? Are you Elijah or are you the prophet? And John's response is, and this is from Isaiah 40, verse 3, he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And then, so he says, I'm the one who's come to prepare the way for Messiah. And then the Pharisees say to him, well, look, if you're not the Christ, or if you're not Elijah the prophet, um, or, sorry, if you're not Elijah or the prophet, then why is it that uh, you're baptising? And uh, John, John didn't answer the question directly, but what he did say is that uh, there was one who stood among them whose sandals he wasn't worthy to untie. And, um, and then John the writer tells us that this teaching of John the Baptist was going on at Bethany, which was uh, the other side of the Jordan where he was baptising. So not to be mixed up with the Bethany that was just outside Jerusalem where Jesus stayed for the last week of his life. And um, then the next day, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he tells the crowd how when he baptised him, he saw the Holy Spirit come down upon him as a dove. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here we see this is after Jesus has been baptised by John. John sees Jesus in the crowd and he says to the crowd, This is what happened when I baptised Jesus. And obviously this is John testifying uh, that Jesus was the Son of God. And then John the Baptist tells people directly, he is the Son of God. And so there we have the writer of John's Gospel, John, telling us um, about the ministry of John the Baptist. Now we have the first calling of some of the disciples. So now Jesus begins to call uh, some of the disciples. And um, first of all, he calls Andrew and Peter, or Simon Peter. Um, then he calls another disciple who's not named, but from the narrative we can assume that it is John himself, the writer. Doesn't name himself, probably being humble or something. Um, and, and we're told as well that Andrew and John were actually disciples of John the Baptist, but now they switch to Jesus. So that's interesting. Some of the disciples, not all of them, but Andrew and John, were already disciples of John the Baptist. But on the basis of what John the Baptist says about Jesus, they now move over to Jesus and go like, you know, for the real thing. Um, ha having called them, Jesus renames Simon as Cephas, um, which in Aramaic is Peter, and it means like rock. So there Simon gets renamed Cephas or Peter in Aramaic. Um, the next day, Jesus goes to Galilee and uh, so this is this is right very early on very very soon after Jesus has been baptized and this is all information that the synoptic gospels don't give us and uh, the next day Jesus goes to Galilee and um, he calls Philip and uh, Philip rushes off to tell another guy Nathaniel and he tells Nathaniel about Jesus 
and he says, look, we found, we found Messiah. And uh, Nathaniel questions whether or not anything good can come out of Nazareth. Because remember, we saw in the synoptics, like, he shall be called a Nazarene. The Jews down in the south frowned on the north. And anyone, come, you know, Nazarene became a derogatory word for somebody. And uh, so Nazareth, which was where Jesus was brought up, not where he was born, however, um, you know, was a kind of a place that was really looked down on. And, uh, you know, so here, you know, Philip saying to Nathaniel, look, we've, we've found Jesus, it's wonderful. Oh, and by the way, he comes from Nazareth. And, you know, Nathaniel said, oh, can anything good come out of, uh, of Nazareth? And, um, but anyway, he goes to have a look. And as Nathaniel approaches Jesus, all right, Jesus says of him, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. So Jesus could see in Nathaniel that here was someone, not who wasn't sinful, but someone who would be honest about his sin. And, um, and then Jesus tells Nathaniel, I saw you while you were sitting under the fig tree. So obviously there was a word of knowledge and it was enough to convince Nathaniel that there was something supernatural about it. And uh, so based on that word of knowledge, Nathaniel says, oh, I believe, I believe you're the Messiah, I'm going to follow you. And uh, Jesus then tells him, look, Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things than that. And he says, in fact, you're going to see heaven open and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And that was kind of an allusion back to ja the, the dream that Jacob had of the lab ladder going up to heaven and the angels going up and down on it. That was uh, in Genesis 28. And, you know, anyway, it was Jesus saying that, you know, saying that I, I'm the stairway to heaven, you know, that I am the way to heaven. Now, if you're wondering who Nathaniel is, because, hang on, wait a minute, Jesus didn't have one of the twelve disciples called Nathaniel. In the Synoptic Gospels, he's called Bartholomew. See, a lot of name changing went on. So, Nathaniel in John, but he was Bartholomew in the Synoptic Gospels. So there we have the story about how Jesus called him, which we're not given in Matthew, Mark or Luke. Right, then we move into um, chapter 2, and um, the disciples go to Cana in Galilee with Jesus, this is the next day, um, because Jesus has been invited to a wedding there, and his mum, Mary, is there as well, and uh, they run out of wine, um, and Mary volunteered Jesus' help. Oh, she said, my, my boy Jesus, he'll suit this out, uh, he'll sort this out, and of course Jesus corrected her, he said, look, my time has not yet come, and he corrected her. He did what she asked, but Mary shouldn't have presumed to have volunteered Jesus to work a miracle. Jesus, by his grace, did, because it was his mum after all, but he did correct her, because, you know, sort of like she shouldn't have done, really. And, of course, he turned the water into wine. And, um, and you remember that, you know, the people said, well, crumbs, and this is the best wine. You know, say, normally, you know, sort of like, you know, you get the best wine first and the worst wine, and having... They, they've had the best wine and the worst wine. Now Jesus turns water into wine. They, oh, this is, this is the best yet. And when Jesus does something, he does it properly. And, um, and then John says that, that this was the first miraculous sign that Jesus worked. So this is the first miracle that Jesus works. Um, the word of knowledge, when Jesus saw Nathanael under the fig tree, Although supernatural, that was a word of knowledge. It's, it doesn't, doesn't get put in the category of miraculous sign, all right? Um, so John says this was the first, like, you know, miracle uh, that, that Jesus worked. And um, they, they, they stayed a few days 
um, in the Capernaum area and uh, Jesus' mother was there, the disciples were there and, um, and Jesus' brothers were there as well. No mention of Joseph, Jesus' adoptive father. Um, the presumption is that he was dead. I mean, we don't know what happened to him, but I think it's unlikely he'd run off <laughs> with someone else. And so I think probably him being dead is the kind of, you know, sort of that's probably what, what happened, but no mention of Joseph anyway. Right, where now, the, the time period we're at now is about four months after Jesus' baptism and temptation in the wilderness, all right? And now, okay, we, we, we start his early Judean ministry, which was only recorded by John. So this, this we've had four months so far, Jesus very low-key, only having worked one miracle, all right? But now we move into an eight-month period when Jesus heads back down south, and for eight months, more or less, he's like preaching and ministering down south in Judea. And this period of time in Jesus' life and ministry is only recorded by John, all right? And John tells us that Jesus goes to Jerusalem and seeing all the people in the temple, and of course they were making money out of the money changing and you know, like selling the sacrificial animals and stuff like that, um, he, he, he makes a whip of cords and he, he drives them all out of the temple. He turns the tables over, uh, you know, this is the money changers and, and the people who are selling the animals for sacrifices. Basically, they turned it into a money-spinning operation, and Jesus absolutely hated it, and so he throws them all out of the temple. And, um, and what he says is, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? Um, and then John tells us that later on, the disciples remembered Psalm 69 verse 9, which said, zeal for your house will consume me. And they kind of realised that that was a, a prophetic thing in the psalm, uh, you know, talking about when Jesus was going to, um, you know, sort of like throw everyone out of the temple. And having done this, once Jesus had thrown them all out, the people, they, they demand a sign of his authority. You know, by, by what right do you do this? And Jesus answers them. He says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Now, they thought that uh, he meant the temple that was standing there, the actual building. Uh, but of course, Jesus meant his body. Because again, when we did the Haggai series, we saw that the temple was ultimately simply a symbol of Jesus himself coming, the place where God lived. And, and, and in him, in Colossians, Paul says, dwelt the fullness of God. And so Jesus is saying, the authority that I've got to do this will be established by the fact that I'm going to be raised from the dead three days after you kill me. Although they thought that he was talking about the physical temple. Now, it's just worth saying here, Matthew, Mark and Luke, the synoptic gospels, record Jesus as cleansing the temple and throwing everyone out at the end of his ministry, not at the beginning. So do we have a contradiction here? No, we don't. Jesus threw them out of the temple at the beginning of his ministry and he did it again at the end. Well, that's one way to make a point, isn't it? So from John's Gospel, we actually learn that Jesus did this cleansing of the temple. He did it at the beginning of his ministry, and then, a couple of years later, he went back and he did it again, because they were still doing it. They hadn't stopped, uh, you know, all the stuff in the temple that Jesus didn't like. So there we have, you know, like the first cleansing of the temple. 
And, uh, and then John tells us that a Passover feast starts, it's at the time of the Passover feast, and now Jesus starts to work lots of miracles. So now the miracles start to come thick and fast, and, uh, and it says that, that many believed, because now his time had come. Up till this point, the miracles were very few and far between. And like when Mary wanted Jesus to turn the water into wine, that was technically before Jesus' time. He wasn't supposed to be working miracles like that then, but he did it because it was his mum. But now Jesus is really starting to go full swing and the miracles are starting and people are starting to believe in him in large numbers. But John adds that Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to any men at all. And John said, because he knew what was in man. So he, even with all these people starting to follow him, Jesus always, he knew what was in man and he knew how fickle people could be. In chapter 3, John tells us of um, a bloke called Nicodemus who um, comes to Jesus by night. Uh, he, he came by night either because he was ashamed or he came by night because he couldn't wait till the morning. I don't know which it was. Um, but he, he called Jesus rabbi and acknowledged to Jesus that God was with him because he said, no, you know, you couldn't work all these miracles if God wasn't. And, um, and Jesus says to him, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Now, Nicodemus's problem, interestingly enough, and we saw this, didn't we, when we did the tradition series, um, his, his, his problem... I think it was a tradition series, but never mind. His problem wasn't with the idea of being born again, but it was with being born again when he was old. He said, how can a man when he is old enter again his mother's womb? So it wasn't the idea of being born again that threw him. And remember, Pharisaic Judaism taught six ways of being born again. When a Gentile became a convert, or when a Jew was crowned king. Now, neither of those applied to um, Nicodemus. But the next four did. Bar Mitzvah, when you became a man in the Jewish faith. Uh, when you got married, and we know that Nicodemus was married because so he was on the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. When you were ordained as a rabbi, you know, and he was, and also um, if you became the head of a rabbinical school. And in the Greek, when it talks about Nicodemus being a teacher, it talks about him being the teacher of Israel. He was the head of the rabbinical school in um, Israel. So the point was that of the six ways of getting born, you know, of, of the six ways that you could get born again, four of them potentially applied to Nicodemus, and he'd already had them all. And so the point is, he'd run out of all his born agains. And so he says to Jesus, What on earth are you talking about? I you know, I mean, I know that we've got to be born again, but what's left? I've done them all. And of course, this is when, you know, Jesus is saying, Look, you have to be born of water, physical birth but he says you've got to be born of the Spirit. And this is obviously when we become a Christian, an actual conversion. And Jesus says, look, flesh leads to flesh, biology, but spirit to spirit, spiritual. So when you're born of water, your birth, because remember the baby's born in, in water, all right? That gives you biological life, but it's only when you're born again by believing on Jesus that you get spiritual life. And Jesus says, look, the wind blows where it wills, and he says, that's what it's like with being born again. Uh, you know, you have no control over what the wind's going to do, and you have no control over people being born again, becoming Christians. And of course, there you've got, you know, like the sovereignty of God um, in people becoming converted. And I just refer you back to chapter 1, verse 13, where John makes it quite clear, um, you know, that, um, you know, that, 
that, that when someone is born of God, they're, they're born not by the will of man, but by the will of God. And of course, the point is, uh, you know, for everyone who has children, the children had no say in their birth. That decision was made by someone else, not them. That's exactly the same for us. I got born again because God decided I would, in the same way Adam got born because Gary and Eve decided he would, if you see what I mean. So again, Jesus is saying this is something that is purely of, of God. And, um, and he tells Nicodemus that as the son of man, that he's gone between heaven and earth. I mean, G Jesus could live on both planes. He knew what it was to be in heaven. He knew what it was to be on earth. And so therefore, because he knows what it is to live in both places, he can speak of heavenly things as well as, as earthly things. And he says that he was going to be lifted up just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert. And that's referring to Numbers 21, when you remember God sent a judgment of serpents on Israel. And what Moses did, he fashioned uh, you know, like a, a model of a serpent on a, a pole, and he lifted it up, and everyone who looked to that bronze serpent were healed of the results of the serpent bites. And, and Jesus said, I'm going to be lifted up in the same way so that everyone who believes on me will have eternal life. And that's a picture, Jesus being lifted up on the cross so that all who believe in him will be delivered, saved from the, uh, from the results of sin. And alluding back to that story in Numbers 21. And this is when we get the, the very famous John 3 verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that is the heart of Jesus' teaching. And then John talks about how Jesus is the light of the world, and having come into the world, the tragedy is that men love darkness rather than light, because the light exposes their deeds. Now then, the rest of the chapter takes us back now to John the Baptist, right? And John the Baptist is still baptising away, but he's, he's still up north, uh, kind of like, you know, Galilee way. And, um, and he, he's asked uh, a question about uh, ceremonial washing, and so he kind of um, answers that. And, um, and, and, and then people tell him that, that more people are going to Jesus than to him. So people are saying, look, Jesus is getting more popular than you are. And, uh, and then what, what John says, he says, well, look, he says, look, I'm, I'm not the Christ. He says, I'm not the, he says, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. He says, J Jesus is the bridegroom. And he said that his joy was complete because his joy was in the bridegroom. He was merely the bridegroom's friend. And he said, he must increase and I must decrease. So when people are saying, look, John, more people are going to Jesus than to you, John says, brilliant, that's exactly how it should be. And I just joy in that because he's the bridegroom. He is the Messiah, not me. And, um, and he said, look, you know, Jesus is from heaven and he's greater and God has given him the Holy Spirit without limit, without any measure. And then John goes on to say, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life but whoever rejects the Son shall not see life, and God's wrath remains on him. So we see there, that was the heart of John the Baptist's teaching as well. Believe on Jesus. Not on him, but believe on Jesus. Right, now then, chapter 4. Uh, the Pharisees hear that um, Jesus is now getting an even bigger following than John the Baptist. Um, and, uh, you know, so now... 
kind of like persecution begins to loom a bit large. And it's at this point that Jesus finishes this eight-month like ministry tour down in Judea, and now he heads back up to Galilee. So now, having done an eight-month stint down south, now he heads back up north, right? But of course, when you go from Judea up to Galilee, you go through Samaria, all right? And uh, so Jesus, with the disciples, passes through Samaria. And uh, they get to Jacob's well, which was at a place called Sychar. And they were there at noon, the hottest part of the day. The disciples go off and buy food, and they leave Jesus uh, by the well. And uh, a Samaritan woman turns up, and Jesus asks her for a drink. This, this was unheard of, because the Jews didn't have any dealings with the Samaritans. The Samaritans, you believe, were kind of the half-breed Jewish race left over from the Assyrian captivity when the ten tribes of the north, northern kingdom, were carted off by the Assyrians. And those who weren't carted off went into mixed marriages. And so you've got, you know, the Samaritans were kind of a half-breed Jewish race. They were Jewish, but they were half-breed. And the Jews, kind of, especially in Judea, really did look down their nose at the Samaritans, you know, thought they were the you know, sort of like the lowest of the low. And uh, here, Jesus talks to a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman as well. And this, this was just unheard of. And, uh, and he says to her that if she'd have known who he was, she would have asked him for a drink, and he would have given her living water. So he's asked her to give him a drink. So she, she's drawing water to give him a drink. And then he says, but if you'd known who I was, actually, you'd be asking me for a drink and I would give you living water. And uh, now she takes that literally, all right, because Jesus said you'll have living water springing up unto eternal life. She thinks that Jesus has actually got some water on him. If she drinks it, she'll never die. So she says, all right, okay, look, give me some of this because then if I drink it, I'll never have to come to the well and draw water again. So she, she, she took it a little bit too literally. She didn't get the point that Jesus was talking a little bit symbolically there. Um, and Jesus says to her, go and fetch your husband. Now Jesus is getting a lot of words and knowledge here, because the truth of the matter was, she'd had five husbands and was currently living in sin with someone else who wasn't her husband. Now when you've had five husbands, and she was obviously only young, I mean, you know, you lose one or two, that's unfortunate, but five is getting careless, isn't it? So, and I think the fact that she was living with someone who wasn't her husband as well tells us that this was not an upright living woman, all right? So Jesus tells her this, go and get your husband. And she says, oh, I haven't got one. He says, yes, I know, and tells her a whole history. And, uh, and she says, oh, crumbs, you're a prophet. And she acknowledges, you're a prophet, wow. And then very quickly, she changes the subject. You see, her morality is cause for repentance. So get this prophet off of her personal morality. And she very quickly changes the subject onto places of worship. She says, look, you know, you've got Jerusalem and we've got Mount Gerizim and that was their special place, blah, blah, blah. And then Jesus comes straight back and he says, no, no, look, worship is not a question of where you do it. Worship is a question of doing it in spirit and truth. Because God is spirit and Jesus is the truth. And what she, she's trying to change the subject to get off of her the mess that her life is in and uh and 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 then the woman says to jesus look i know that messiah is coming and jesus says i who speak to you am he 
All right, so Jesus saying, I am Messiah. The disciples come back at this point, and they're amazed that he's talking to a woman. And uh, she, she, she goes off back into town, and she, she tells every, everyone, look, come and meet a man who's told me everything I've ever done. All right, so she goes off telling everyone about this amazing man she's just met by the well. Um, and the disciples, uh, you know, they're sort of like, they, you know, they sort of like come back with the food and that. And Jesus says, um, you know, that I've, I've, I've got food um, that you know nothing of. And, and, you know, the disciples wonder whether someone had brought him sandwiches or something. So they didn't realise again that he was talking symbolically, not literally. And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And that was the food that Jesus was talking about. And he tells them that the fields are ripe for harvest of eternal life. And he says that others have sown and that they would reap the benefits of their labours. And of course the others who had sown were all the Old Testament prophets. And now the disciples were going to be the ones in the early church to come into the benefit of everything that the Old Testament prophets had done. Now then, as a result of this woman telling everyone about him, uh, G Jesus stays there for two more days and a lot of the Samaritans become Christians. And, um, and eventually they said to the woman, and this, this is good, they said, we no longer believe just because of what you said, now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. So they'd passed the transition from merely hearing what someone else had said and they'd gone to Jesus and they'd discovered him themselves and so lots of the uh, the Samaritans become Christians right having finished there then Jesus moves up to Galilee back up to the north and now by and large he's up there for the next two years of his ministry and this is the point where the synoptics start Matthew Mark and Luke they do up to Jesus's baptism and temptation in the wilderness and then they skip all the rest that we've done here and the synoptics start at the two-year ministry um, up north in Galilee. And so now we're at the point in John's Gospel where his chronology synchronises with where the synoptics pick up the narrative having done Jesus' uh, baptism and temptation. So he, 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 he goes up there. And um, he visits Cana, that's where he worked the miracle at the wedding. And uh, he, he goes to Cana, and there's um, a royal official, which would be someone who was high up in Herod's court from Capernaum, who comes to him because his son was close to death at home. And he comes to Jesus saying, you know, I want you to heal my son. And Jesus sends him home saying, look, go home and your son will live. And when he gets home, he finds that his son had recovered at the exact time that Jesus said that he would. And then John said that was the second of Jesus's miraculous signs done in Galilee, which it was. Jesus had done loads of signs down in Judea over the last eight months, but this is the second miraculous sign he's worked in Galilee. The first one being the turning the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. All right. Right, now in chapter five, John now, we're into the two years that Jesus spent up in um. Uh, in Galilee, up north. But now John tells us about a visit that he made down south. Again, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, don't tell us about this. But although Jesus is now based in Galilee for a two-year period, this is an occasion when he goes back down to Jerusalem, which he would have done every now and then, just for one-off reasons, all right? 
So he, he goes back down to Jerusalem, and um, and there's um, a pool near the Sheep Gate outside the temple. And uh, th th there was a local belief that uh, every now and then an angel stirs the water and Thirsting gets healed. And so all, you know, like loads of cripples and paralysed and ill people would be round this pool. I mean, it was, it was local superstition, all right, but they were all there, okay. And, um, and there was a bloke there who'd been an invalid for 38 years. So this is quite a, you know, bloke in a bad way. And Jesus asked him if he wanted to get well, which is really odd. I mean, you'd think it was obvious that he would. But the point is, if he got well, he couldn't be a beggar anymore. With blessing comes responsibility. With healing comes a new life, all right. This bloke obviously has always been dependent on other people. If he's healed, he's going to have to start, you know, you know, looking after himself. And, uh, you know, and obviously the bloke says, oh, yeah, I do want to be healed. And Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. And this bloke picks it and he walks. And this happened on a Sabbath, all right? Now, the Pharisees jump into, you know, sort of bump into this bloke walking around, um, you know, carrying his mat. And um, they, they know that he's just been healed because they'd have known him. And they see him walking around and they know him and they tell him off for having got healed on the sabbath they rebuke him because on according to the tradition of the elders you couldn't do healing on the sabbath and they tell him off <laughs> and and but but he says look you know the bloke who healed me told me to pick up my mat and walk and so i'm i'm doing it and they said well who, who is this who did this and he says that he he didn't know later on he goes to the temple and jesus finds him and tells him to stop sinning in case anything worse before him so jesus says right now i've healed you you stop sinning you stay right with me because he, something even worse might befall you if you don't stay right with me all right and uh, you know so there jesus is saying i've healed you but more than anything else i want you to live a holy life i i want you to be my disciple and uh, so obviously now this bloke really, you know, hey, I'm Jesus, and blah, so he knows who he is now. And then he goes to the Pharisees and uh, tells them, yeah, the, the bloke who healed me, it was, um, it was Jesus. And it's at this point that the Jews really start to persecute Jesus. And Jesus tells them, he says, my father is working and I am working. Now the Jews knew full well what Jesus was saying. That statement made him equal with his Father, with God. And so therefore, because Jesus is making himself equal with God by calling him his Father, because remember, no Jew believed God was his Father. God was the Father of the Jewish nation. There was no idea of God being the Father of individual Jews. So this was new. They knew that Jesus was claiming to be divine here. And so therefore, to them, that was blasphemy. And, uh, you know, so they start to persecute him. And Jesus teaches them that the Son only does what the Father's doing um, and can give life to the dead just as the Father can. So that, that the Son, so what Jesus is saying, yeah, and not only that am I equal with God, but I can actually do everything that God does as well. And then he says, and further, the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And then he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life and won't be condemned. And he says, as the Son of Man, he has been made the judge. And he said, the time is coming when everyone will be raised back to life from the dead. And when that happens, they will be raised back either to eternal life or to eternal damnation. And he says, this will be on the basis of the judgment of the Son, i.e. me. 
Now, you can't get more blatant teaching of Jesus that he was God. And, and, and can you see, wow, they, they really, they're, they're starting to go up the wall now. And he then goes on and he says, look, he accepted that testifying to himself wasn't valid. Anyone can claim anything for themselves. But he said he had the testimony of John the Baptist, and they knew full well that John the Baptist was a prophet. He said he had the witness of his own signs and wonders, because how do you work miracles like that if you're not God? And he says, I've got the witness of the Old Testament scriptures. So he says, don't take my word for it. You've got John the Baptist, you've got the miracles I'm working, and you've got the Old Testament scriptures. They testify that I am exactly who I've just told you that I am. But he tells them that because they weren't of God, therefore they wouldn't accept him, even though he proved, was proving who he was. And he said, in the last days, their accuser would be Moses i.e. representative of the Old Testament scriptures. And what Jesus is saying, you know full well who I am, but you choose to reject me. Uh, you've got all the evidence that you could possibly need. And on the last day, when you're judged by God, the accuser will be Moses, the Old Testament scriptures. And remember, it was because of Moses and the Old Testament scriptures that the Jews prided themselves on being saved because they were God's chosen people because they've got the Old Testament completely wrong. And Jesus says, on the last day, when you go into judgment, it will be Moses, it will be the Old Testament scriptures that condemn you. They will be who and what accuse you before God um, at that particular time. Right, we move on to chapter six. And after that interlude down in Jerusalem, down south, we're back up to Galilee, continuing Jesus's two-year ministry there. And um, we have the feeding of the 5,000. Remember all the crowds following Jesus and he had the 12 loaves and, uh, sorry, the five loaves and the two fishes and he broke them and he, he fed this crowd. But it was 5,000 men. That didn't include the women and children. And you'll remember that there were 12 basketfuls of bread left over. And uh, interestingly enough, th this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, along with the resurrection they are the only two miracles recorded in all four Gospels, all right? So the resurrection and the feeding of the 5,000 are the only miracles in all four Gospels. And, um, and you just get a little kind of aside from John here about the feeding of the 5,000, that uh, Jesus had um, asked Philip where they could buy bread because Philip was from nearby Bethsaida, which was close to where this miracle actually took place. And of course the point was that Jesus there was testing, uh, testing um, Philip there, because his disciples have said, look, how are we going to feed these people? And there's these thousands of people, and Jesus says, well, where's the nearest bakers? Philip, you, you live here. Where's... And of course he was testing them. So, I mean, obviously no, no food place could have possibly provided them with what they needed, because of course Jesus knew that he was going to work that particular miracle. And as a result of feeding the 5,000, these crowds decide that they want to make him king. And at the moment they do that, Jesus kind of withdraws and he, he goes off on his own. Because whenever people started to be like that, he withdrew. Because Jesus, Jesus wanted disciples. He didn't want hero worshippers. There's a big difference. And when people say, oh, we'll make you king, he knew that was fickle. That wasn't genuine discipleship. So Jesus would always withdraw the moment that people started giving him the wrong type of attention. And uh, having, having done that, we uh, then immediately get, get the story of um, 
the walking on the water. You remember that the disciples went out in the boat, Jesus wasn't with them, and there was the storm that, that blew up, and, um, and they were terrified, and Jesus walked to them. And then John says that as soon as Jesus got into the boat, uh, they were at, at land where they were going. And uh, you remember that, that story, the walking on the water, that was in Matthew and Mark, but not Luke. All right. So that doesn't qualify as a miracle in all four Gospels because that's, that's not in, in Luke. So there you get the walking on the water. And uh, then the, the next day, all these crowds who have been fed, you know, this is like the next day, you know, like the feeding of the 5,000, they all pile into boats and they, they set off to Capernaum. It's all this round the Lake of Galilee, so. So, so they set off across the lake to Capernaum to, to find out where Jesus has gone. You know, we've got to find him, got to find him, like. And uh, so they eventually did find him. And, oh, we found you. Oh, these thousands of people. Oh, we found you, Lord. And, uh, and Jesus tells them that they only wanted to find him because um, they wanted to see miracles and uh, because they wanted bread. He says, you don't want me because I've got the food of eternal life. You just want me because I'm working miracles. And uh, Jesus knew. He knew the difference between people who wanted to be his disciples and people who were just caught up in the excitement of what Jesus was able to do. And so they say to him, well, what must we do to please God? What, what works must we do, Jesus? And Jesus replied, this is the work of God to believe in the one whom he sent. And Jesus says, if you want to do God's work, believe in me. But of course, not for miracles, for salvation. That, that's what Jesus was telling them. And then they say, well, give us a sign then. Well, you know, I mean, crumbs, they've been fed with, I mean, how many more signs do they, what these people, they're only following Jesus because he's done so many miracles. And they say, well, come on, work a miracle then. Well, as if Jesus hadn't just worked loads for them. This is how fickle it is. And, uh, and, and they quote the Old Testament about the manna in the wilderness. And of course, what they're saying to Jesus, they're saying, look, this thing about the manner in the, you know, in the wilderness, they're saying, look, Moses fed a nation for 40 years with bread from heaven. And they're saying, Jesus, you've, you've, you've just done it once, and that with ordinary bread as well. So what they're doing is they're directly comparing him to Moses and the manner in the wilderness. And they're saying, no, we think the Moses miracle is more impressive, Jesus. What can you come up with? This is literally what they're doing. They're playing tennis. With, you know, they're, they're batting around, you know, sort of like, you know, name, name that miracle in, in one. You know, it's, it's just nuts. And Jesus reminds them that what happened with Moses, it wasn't Moses giving the people the manna for the 40 years. He said that was God who gave the manna. It wasn't actually Moses who did it. It was God. And he says, but now God is giving you a different type of bread. God is giving you a different sort of manna now. And so the people say, right, okay, Jesus, let's have that manna then. Now, let's actually just read. Um, we're in chapter 6. I'm just going to read uh, the next passage because it's just so important and it's just good to read it. So they're saying, right, okay, Jesus, you're saying that God gave Moses the bread, and now you're saying there's a different sort of bread that God wants to give us. Right, Jesus, we want that bread. What is it? And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He says, God's giving you me, folks. I'm the manna now. 
I'm what you need every day now. And he says, he who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I've told you, you've seen me and you still don't believe. All who the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. There you see, I, I gave myself to Jesus because God gave me to Jesus. See, it's there. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me. See again, you gave yourself to Jesus because God gave you to Jesus. See, you didn't decide to be born again. God decided you'd be born again. Your children didn't decide to be born. You decided they would be born, you see. Uh, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. I, the resurrection body, glorify body. At this time, the Jews began to grumble because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Because it's silly. They're saying, yeah, but we know your mum and dad. Well, I mean, the point was Joseph was Jesus' stepfather, not his real father. But it's irrelevant. The fact that they knew Jesus where he was brought up was irrelevant to whether or not what he was saying here was true or not. And uh, Jesus said, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. It's written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. <clears throat> then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give his flesh to eat? So what Jesus is saying, look, I'm the manna, I'm the bread of life, but the difference is, the Jews who ate the manna that Moses, you know, that they got from God while they were following Moses, they died and they weren't necessarily saved. But Jesus says, anyone who accepts me as the bread of life, <coughs> then the difference is that because they're saved, they are going to live forever. And of course, in verse 52, uh, you know, because Jesus says, this bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And then they say, how can this man give his flesh for us to eat? And they, they just take Jesus too literally there. Because Jesus isn't literally saying, I'm giving my body for you to cannibalise. He's saying the point is, the bread is my body, but it was Jesus' body that was given in death that would be the means of their salvation. <coughs> and so what they're saying is, look, how, how can we eat this bread from heaven uh, when this bread from heaven is a human being, they're, they're still taking it too literally. They're not realising that the manna, or, uh, although it was a real historically event, it was a symbol of Messiah who was to come. So they're taking it literally. Now, we'll read on from verse 53. And in a sense, what you know, Jesus is saying, OK, right, you want to take this literally, we'll try this for size then. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you can eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, 
for I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. And so what Jesus is, is, is saying here, again using the symbolism of Israel's, you know, the manna and, you know, the way that God provided water in the wilderness, Do you remember it came out of the rock, that what Jesus is doing, he's speaking symbolically but using literal language. You remember the woman at the well, when Jesus started speaking about, you know, the sort of like the living water that would spring up to eternal life, she took him too literally, thought she, he was literally meaning physical water. He wasn't. It was, you know, kind of there. It was a symbol for something else. And so he's doing the same here. He's using the literal language of eating him, as it were, uh, because they've taken it so literally. But of course, the symbolism that Jesus is driving at here is that what you eat and drink becomes one with you. Now, we'll be back to this when we get to chapter 14 and 15 and the teaching that Jesus is one with us as the branches are one with the vine. The point is, the food and drink that you take in is in you and becomes part of you. It's a picture of oneness with Jesus. It doesn't particularly relate to the Lord's Supper here and the bread and the wine there, because this is, you know, like a couple of years before that is actually um, instituted. But the point is, Jesus is talking here about them being absolutely one with him, and hence the, you know, kind of the eating and the drinking thing, all tied up with the manna that God provided that gave the Jews' life in the wilderness. And of course what Jesus is saying here, that he is the bread from heaven, and if we're one with him, if we eat and drink him, if we're one with him, if we allow him to be in us, if we believe on him, then he will give us eternal life in this world. That's the symbolism that Jesus is uh, going on about. And um, then John tells us that all this was going on at a, a synagogue in Capernaum. And I'm going to read on from verse, uh, from, uh, verse 60. On hearing this, many of the disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Do you want to leave me too? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. And so what you've got now is this teaching was, was, was so OTT for a lot of people who are following him that they, they desert him. Now what you've got here, Jesus has had a problem with crowds following him who he knew weren't following him in sincerity. They were after miracles, they were after the buzz, they were after the excitement. 
it was a, 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 a carnal thing. It was worldliness, religious worldliness, rather than a genuine desire to be disciples and to be made holy. And so what he does is he gives this teaching and they all vanish except 12. Jesus is following. His mobile church has gone down from 5,000 plus to 12 overnight. I wonder if that's a revival. <laughs> this is anti-revival, isn't it? But sometimes God has to reduce things to nothing before they, they actually grow. And, uh, you know, and of course, there's the 12 left. And I just love it because Jesus says, are you going to leave me? And the beautiful thing about the 12, and Peter speaks to me, he says, but we haven't got anywhere else to go, Lord. And that is the place of safety. That is why being a disciple is so wonderful. Because we haven't got anywhere else to go, have we? And being with Jesus is the best person to be with in any case. So that is discipleship. It's having nowhere to go except Jesus. It's saying to Jesus, you've got the words of eternal life. There is, no, there is nothing outside of you. And then chapter 6, as we saw, just ends with John saying about Judas Iscariot and that he was going to um, end up betraying Jesus. Right, okay, chapter 7. And um, we now move into the next time period in the chronology of Jesus' life. And we now move on to the period of the four months leading up to the crucifixion. So we've had kind of the eight months down in uh, Judea, down south. We've had the two years up in the north in Galilee, and that's what the gospel, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke primarily homing on. But now we move into the last four months. And when Jesus goes back down south, and also some of this is over in Perea, which was just the other side of the um, the other side of the Jordan, where we saw early on in the Bible survey where the Transjordan tribes had settled when uh, Joshua brought them in uh, to possess the land. And, uh, and 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 this is the period that Luke, you'll remember, specifically homes in on. So now we're we're towards the end of Jesus's life. Now we're move, moving steadily onwards towards the crucifixion. So most of John's Gospel now, because we're only on to chapter 7, deals with the last four months of Jesus's life. And as we get later on in John's Gospel, you'll see that an awful lot of it actually is literally the last few days of Jesus's life. Anyway, chapter 7, and uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles is approaching, and his brothers, these would be his half-brothers, urge him to go down. They say, look, Feast of the Tabernacles, brilliant Jesus, go to the feast, nice and public, work a few miracles, and you'll become much more public and more people will believe on you. Um, that sounds like an awful lot of what goes under the name of revival today to me as well. This thing, get, get, go down, do a high-profile ministry thing, and God will bless it. And uh, so really what they're saying is, Jesus, it's time for a big, dramatic, religious, public relations and advertising campaign. And, uh, and then John adds, them having said this, as they didn't believe in him. So if they had believed in him, they wouldn't have said anything so stupid. I mean, when God becomes a man, why does he need publicity campaigns? Of course he doesn't. And, uh, and, and Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm not going down to the, this festival that you're bidding. He says, you go. Jesus wasn't going to have any of this, go down and work a few miracles, get high profile. It wasn't why Jesus worked miracles. And uh, so he says, you, you go down, so off they went. And he stayed in Galilee. But then he went down a little bit later, only in secret. So they said, Jesus, you need to go down and do a big splash. And so he says, no, you go on your own. 
and they go and Jesus goes down later secretly. The exact opposite. Jesus was not a self-publicist. It's very important. So much evangelism today is based on publicising around personalities. Jesus didn't do that at all. Anyway, down, down at the feast, right, Jesus has gone down on his Todd secretly. No one else knows who's there. But the, this, this feast is, is buzzing. And everyone, the crowds are saying, where is that man? Where is he? Is he going to come? So the, the whole of Jerusalem was, is, is this bloke who's been working all these miracles, is he going to come to the feast? And some of the crowd are saying that he was a good man, and others are saying that he's a deceiver. So you've got everyone believing all sorts about Jesus. But John tells us that they were too afraid to talk about him too openly. And of course that would have been <coughs> because of the Pharisees, because of the powers that be who were persecuting him. And um, halfway through the feast, then Jesus goes to the temple courts and he starts to teach. And uh, the Jews are amazed at the learning that he has given that he'd never studied under a formal teacher. Jesus had never been through rabbinical school or anything like that. And they were amazed at his teaching. And, um, and Jesus told them that his father was his teacher. And he's saying, well, if you think this is good, it's because I've got it from God, not from a rabbi. I've got it from my father. And, um, and, and he says that any of you who choose to do God's will will know that what I've just said is true. So Jesus said, all those of you who are going to believe in me, you'll know that what I've just said is true, that what I'm teaching you is what God is saying. And, um, and then he tells them that they weren't keeping the Mosaic law. And he's, you know, he's basically saying, look, you don't even live according to the light you've got. How can you expect to understand new light? He says, you're not living according to the Mosaic law. And, and he said, and, and I say that because you're trying to kill me. And of course, the point is he was innocent. He hadn't done anything wrong. And under the Mosaic law, it was naughty to want to kill an innocent man. And he says, you're breaking your own law by wanting to kill me. Anyway, they, they deny that they wanted to kill him. They said, Jesus, we don't want to kill you. Incidentally, that was a lie. They were lying there. They said, oh, no, that's not true of us, Jesus. We don't want to kill you. And then tell him, you're demonised. Right. And, uh, and, and, and then... What Jesus does is he refers them back to that healing he done prior um, on a Sabbath. So possibly, but we can't be sure, he's referring back to the man who was by that pool, who'd been ill for 38 years, it could be. But he, he refers them back to um, a healing miracle that he'd done on a Sabbath. And he challenges them of the fact that if it's okay to circumcise on the Sabbath, which under the tradition of the elders it was, so why do they want to put him to death for healing on the Sabbath? And of course, there's no answer to that. I mean, it pulls the rug out. It just shows their hypocrisy for what it is. And then he says, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Of course, the point is, though claiming to be under the Mosaic law, their judgments were made out of their own hearts. I mean, they weren't being consistent with the Mosaic law anyway. I mean, all these accusations they're making about Jesus all went against the law because they had no evidence for them. In fact, the evidence was to the contrary. Jesus was proving that who he was, uh, you know, sort of that he was, who, who he was claiming to be. Now, at that point, some other people in the crowd completely blow the gaff and they say, oh, yeah, this is the bloke they're trying to kill. So you've got this big crowd here 
And Jesus says, look, you're breaking the law because you want to kill me. And half the crowd says, oh, no, Jesus, we don't want to kill you, and then tell him he's demonised. Jesus does the bit about circumcision. And then other people in the crowd say, oh, it's like they want to kill, isn't it? I mean, and they drop themselves in it. I mean, they're just all over the place because they're all fighting against the truth. If you fight against the truth, <coughs> you're going to end up talking nonsense. And, uh, and then they, they then go on to ask um, whether the authorities maybe have decided that he is the Messiah after all, <coughs> given that they haven't stopped him appearing in public. So now they say, I mean, they've told him that he's demonised and they've said, we don't want to kill you. And then they've said, oh, yeah, we're trying to kill you. And now they say, but I wonder if the Pharisees think that you are the Messiah now because, um, uh, you know, sort of like they haven't actually arrested you yet. So maybe they think you are who you say they are. But then they go on to say, and other people in the crowd say, look, no, he can't be the Christ because no one knows where he comes from. So they say Jesus can't be the Christ because no one knows where the Christ comes from. We know where Jesus comes from. That was wrong teaching. They were just simply under false teaching there. And, um, and then Jesus tells them that they know where he's from, because, I mean, obviously his birth fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies anyway. And he says, well, you know where I'm from, and knowing where I'm from should tell you that I am Messiah, because you've just said that no one knows where Messiah comes from. Jesus reminds them that the Old Testament prophesied exactly where Messiah was going to come from. And he says, but you don't know the one who sent me. So Jesus is saying, this is why you're in such disarray. You're contradicting yourselves, you're contradicting each other, you're saying I'm demonised, you're saying all these totally ridiculous things, and the reason is because you're not of God, and you're fighting against the truth. Now when he told them that, they tried to seize him. They went, went for him. But they couldn't, John tells us, because his time had not yet come. And this was one of those occasions when they go and get him and sort of like, they're, they're, and no sooner he's gone. He slips through their hands because his time hadn't come. But also, John tells us that at that time, many put their faith in him. And they simply say, well, hang on, when the Christ does come, will he do more miraculous things than this man? And some of them realise, yeah. And they believe. So out of all that chaos from that crowd, nevertheless, some of them become true believers. Now then, the, 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 the Pharisees and the chief priests um, send temple guards to arrest him. They say, right, that, that's it, that, that's it, arrest him. Incidentally, it says chief priests in the plural. It should have only ever been one chief priest. But the point was, the Romans kept deposing who the chief priest was. He spoke out a line, he got you know, deposed, and they pointed another one. But there are always people who believe that the last chief priest was the real one, <laughs> not the current one. And so there's this little council of chief priests. Very complicated. But anyway, this little council of chief priests get together with the Pharisees and they send out the temple guards to arrest Jesus. And um, Jesus carries on teaching and he, he's, he, he tells them that he, he was only going to be with them a short time. And, uh, and that where he was going, they couldn't follow. He says, where I'm going, you can't follow. And a big, big debate breaks out about this. Um, you know, and sort of like people say, well, does that mean he's going to live out, he's going to join the dispersion, he's going to live outside of Israel? And obviously Jesus is meaning heaven. And now the crowd have a little debate, oh, we can't go where he's going. Oh, must be, must, must be going outside Israel. I mean, they're just all over the place. Jesus was meaning, I'm going to heaven. You can't come with me to heaven because you don't believe in me. 
but they completely missed it. Anyway, now we have the last day of the feast, all right? And just, just notice that we've got to the end of the feast. The temple guards haven't arrested him yet. The temple guards have been sent out to arrest him. Now we've got to the end of the feast. He hasn't been arrested yet. Just note that. Now then, in verse 37, Jesus teaches, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of him will flow rivers of living water. All right? And Jesus refers this idea back to the Old Testament and probably thinking of Isaiah 58, verse 11. And John adds that in, in saying this, out of you will flow rivers of living water, that he was referring to the Holy Spirit. So here Jesus is talking about that to believe on him would enable people to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And remember, back in chapter 1, John had already established that Jesus had been given the Holy Spirit without measure. And now Jesus is saying that we can share in that with him. And note as well that the Samaritan woman by the well in chapter 4, <coughs> when Jesus spoke about living water there, he applied it to eternal life. So symbolism can be interchangeable. So Jesus could use the same symbolism, living water, for different things. All right. So symbolism can vary. Right? It doesn't necessarily have to be the same all the time. Now then, at this point, back to the crowd, right? some are saying that he was a prophet. They're saying he's a prophet. That's, that, that's who he is. Others are saying, no, he is the Christ. There's this big debate going on in the crowd. And, uh, but others, they, they go back to this argument about Messiah's origins. And they say, no, Jesus can't be the Messiah because he comes from Galilee. And they say that according to the scripture, um, Messiah was going to come from David's family and from Bethlehem, where David lived. So they say Jesus comes from Galilee, so therefore he cannot be the Messiah. Now, a couple of days before, their argument was, no, he can't be Messiah because we don't know where Messiah comes from. Which wasn't what the Bible says. Now, they're all over the place. You see, double-minded man, unstable in all their ways. All right. Now they're arguing, yeah, no, he can't be Messiah because the Bible tells us where Messiah comes from. And Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. And he's, you know, where, where King David lived and, and David's family. Now, of course, they're right and they're wrong. They're right here about what the Bible says, but they're completely wrong. Because although Jesus lived in Galilee most of his life, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea. I mean, it's just superficial thinking. Can you see how totally all over the place they are? They're running through every possible argument to discredit Jesus. Don't worry that each argument that they move on to discredits their previous theory. They just want to discredit Jesus. And so it doesn't, they don't mind how they discredit Jesus. They'll use any argument under the sun. Doesn't matter whether it doesn't make sense. Doesn't matter if they contradict themselves all over the place. But now they're convincing themselves, no, he can't be the Christ because he comes from Galilee. Well, they were wrong. Jesus came from Judea. He was born in Bethlehem. He just lived in Galilee. There's a big difference. I mean, all the years that I lived in Suffolk doesn't change the fact I'm an Essex lad because that's where I was brought up. That's where I come from. I'm back in Essex now. It was just bad, superficial thinking. But at the end of the day, they want to discredit Jesus. 
You see, when there's no going after truth, when there's no integrity, you'll always find this. People will use any argument, no matter how stupid or self-contradictory it is. And uh, this, you know, G.K. Chesterton, for instance, said, and this is beautiful, it says, when men stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. And you'll see this wherever people are trying to go against what is patently true. You will always see nonsense. Or it's like today, people read the Bible, they'll say Jesus wasn't the Son of God. And then they say, I believe he was an astronaut. <laughs> I believe he was an alien. He came in a UFO. And when you examine that, that is so patently ridiculous. But they'll believe that because they'll refuse to believe the truth about Jesus. And there are so many people, they'll believe anything and everything about Jesus except what Jesus said about himself. And that's what these people are doing here. And it's a nonsense. Right, now back to the temple guards, all right, who go back to the chief priests and the Pharisees with no Jesus. Do you remember they'd been dispatched a few days earlier to arrest him? Now they go back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, no Jesus. And the chief priests and the Pharisees says, where is he? <laughs> I mean, things just aren't going right for them. I mean, the temple guards can't even arrest him. They say, where is he? Why haven't you brought him back? And they say, no one ever spoke the way this man does. And the temple guards, they went to arrest him, heard him teaching, and they didn't dare. They get Jesus' time hadn't come, but they were so awed by what Jesus, is, was, what Jesus was saying. And, um, and so then they say to the guards, oh, have, have you been deceived by him as well? They say, oh, he's, 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 he's got under your skin. And, um, and they brag to the guards that none of the ruling Pharisees have believed in Jesus. They say, none of us have believed in Jesus. You, you mere soldiers, you've been taken in. This is the attitude. You've been taken in. And um, they say, none of us believe in Jesus. And they then go on to say, now look, these are the religious leaders of the people, all right? Having said this to the guards, they then go on and they say, well, the mob, <laughs> that lot out there, they know nothing of the law and they've got a curse on them. And that is what the Pharisees now say about all the Jews. I mean, this is real good spiritual leadership, isn't it? Humble, compassionate, godly, crumbs. What a mess. What a horrific horrible mess but the point is the truth Jesus standing there in their midst teaching the undeniable truth in a totally undeniable way throws everything of falsehood into complete chaos and this is why the groundswell became more and more powerful and it all leads up to let's kill him. Hatred is where it all ends up. Now at this point, Nicodemus, who's sitting in on this meeting, you know, like with the Pharisees and the temple guards, he raises the question, he says, hang on. He says, the way they were condemning Jesus without giving him a hearing was inconsistent with the law. So now Nicodemus, who did eventually become a believer, Nicodemus says, no, hang on a sec. I mean, he, here are the Pharisees and that. 
saying, oh, the Jews are curse on them, what do they know, blah, blah, blah. And he says, hang on a sec, we're going against the law here. Because he points out we've got no basis to be saying that Jesus is demonic or a fraud. Therefore, we shouldn't be doing it. And the response that he gets from these godly spiritual leaders, you know, humble, compassionate, blah, 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 is they say, are you from Galilee too? Now, they're talking to the most influential teacher in Israel. They're talking to one of the most influential men among their number, who is just pointing out that they're being unfair on Jesus. Nicodemus is not actually saying he believes in Jesus, he's just saying you're being unfair on him. And they turn on him and they say, are you from Galilee too? Now, do you remember, that is an insult. We've seen this, didn't they? The people in the south look down on the people in the north, the Galileans. Do you remember this thing? He shall be called a Nazarene. Nazareth. In Galilee, Nazarene. The idea being that if you're from Nazareth, if you're from the north, you're no good. It was an insulting term. So they turn on him and they insult him. They're rude to him. They say, oh, are you from Galilee too? As bad as he is. I mean, crumbs. <coughs> it's horrible. And then... Then, to compound it all, they say, oh, look, Nicodemus, they're now talking to one of the greatest scholars of the Old Testament alive at the time. They say, look, no prophets come out of Galilee. They completely forgot that Jonah did. It's lunatic. They say, we know that Jesus cannot be of God because no prophet comes out of Galilee. But Jonah did. They believed that Jonah was a prophet. And yet, <coughs> the ridiculous thing as well that they missed is that Jesus didn't come from Galilee. He came from Judea. He'd just been brought up in Galilee. He was born, um, he was born in Judea. He was a Judean. He was not a Galilean. And so, in the rounding on Nicodemus, they were wrong on both points. There were prophets in the Old Testament who came from Galilee, but Jesus didn't come from Galilee. So they were wrong to even say that nothing of God could come from up north, but as it happened, Jesus didn't come from up north. He came from down south. And so you can see the chaos that is going on at this feast around Jesus. Because virtually everyone, except those who are believing on him, Everyone else is doing everything they can to discredit him. But the point is, they can't even agree on the basis of how to discredit him. They can't even, in the same way as we you know, will see again when we get to the crucifixion of Jesus, that during the illegal trials at the high priest's house, they bring in witnesses against Jesus. But the witnesses couldn't agree. The testimony of the prosecution witnesses didn't agree. And this is what you see. Because if something is true, it is true, and a fact is a stubborn thing. You can never get rid of a fact. But if you try to, all you can do is call on falsehood, and everyone will call on their own particular brand. And so we see this chaos at this feast. Now, we'll leave it there, and we'll carry on next time. <laughs>